Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Uh, we have Arthur Wilczynski, former government uh, operator across the government, ambassador in Norway, amongst his many other titles. He is now retired and spent most of his time getting bitten by his new puppy. And it's great to talk to you again, Arthur. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Well, I've just spent the past two weeks in Disney, uh, first in Japan skiing, then in Disneyland and, and Universal Studios. So I am exhausted and my knees are sore, but I had a blast. Well, uh, uh, you know... It's a great to to get away a little bit, but a lot's been happening over the past number of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to avoid all the news. Of course, I could bring my computer wherever I go and I bring my phone. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of aware of what's been going on. So let's get into it. First bit of news, of course, is that Trump, unsurprisingly, won the New Hampshire primary. Two ways to read the results. Ah, uh, He's inevitable because this was a state that was going to be least welcoming to him. And he still won it. So therefore, his his primary success is guaranteed. The other way to look at it is he performed worse than any incumbent has ever performed in New Hampshire, that these were those kind of results that got Lyndon Johnson to decide not to run for re-election. So maybe, just maybe, he's not going to win. And of course, anybody who thinks he's not going to win the primary, primary process just needs to listen to Nikki Haley, who's talking about how, you know, if Trump doesn't win, she'll, you know, she'll endorse him if, he, if, 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 she, if she loses. And she's not really going after him, and none of the other candidates are really going after him because they fear him. Yeah, I think I think Iowa and New Hampshire showed just how much of a hold uh, Trump has on the Republican Party. So let's, I mean, I think that the Republican Party is, is 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 Trump's party. I think that there is virtually no chance that anyone is going to displace him as the as the eventual nominee, and I think New Hampshire confirmed that. But I think what. Uh, you're right. I think that his relatively weak showing in, in New Hampshire means that that in places where moderates, uh, unaffiliated voters are going to have an, uh, an important effect, I think that that might might point to some rocky, uh, you know, rocky roads and rock waves for Trump moving forward. But if we're looking in, at, at polls in, in certain swing states, including, I think, South Carolina, including Michigan, he's he's still riding fairly high. So I think that uh, nobody should take the results in New Hampshire for granted that he's in, in any kind of real trouble. I think that this is going to be a really hotly contested presidential election. And the challenging thing is that we've got, you know, it's it's a the, the gerontocracy, you know, Olympics that are that are uh, uh, that are coming forward with both Biden and and Trump being elderly uh, gentlemen. So it'll be really interesting to see who gets motivated to show up and vote. I'm not sure how motivated Democrats are these days. Well, the I think the Democrats would be mighty motivated because the Supreme Court is going to continue to issue decisions that remind people that having a Democrat in the White House matters, that there are now many more court cases involving not just trans rights, 
but basic rights for people who are, you know, uh, in the category of other than straight, married, white Christians. Those folks are feeling the heat, talking, you know, starting to see some noise about not only going after, you know, eliminating all abortion rights, but also going after birth control. So I think the Democrats are going to be mighty motivated. I think they're, they're, the danger right now is division because of the topic we're going to be talking about later on, yeah. which is some parts of the, the Democrats might be less likely to show up. Not, not They're not going to vote for Trump because not, Trump is not pro-Muslim. He's, he was, after all, the guy who banned Muslims from the United States, uh, Muslim immigrants. But they may lose in Michigan because the Arab community decides that that it, the United States has not been sufficiently supportive of the rights of the Palestinians or sufficiently pushing Israel to, to end this war. Right now, the biggest news is that the black clergy in South Carolina has been pushing for Biden to push for a ceasefire. And that's important because that, that black community is a fundamental part of the Democratic Party. The reason why Biden is president is because Biden won the South Carolina primary due to the strength of basically black women voting for him. So he, this is a real pressure on Biden to change the stance. And to be fair to the Biden administration, on one on one side is they they have been trying to get Netanyahu and his government to to be less. I'm trying to find the right word for it to be more discriminating in target selection, to be more willing to negotiate things like that. But at the same time, the United States has not really halted any of the, sale, the shipment of arms. And so there's plenty that communities who are more supportive of the Palestinians to find to criticize. I think that domestic uh, component of, uh, of the Middle East war is, I think, something that, that you know, we see in Canada. It's clear in the U.S. It'll be interesting to see how that that affects the political dynamics. I think it, watching the results uh, for Biden in terms of the turnout uh, for the South Carolina primaries, I think is also going to be uh, uh, interesting to see whether or not there is a, an effect, even though he is essentially uh, uncontested. I think that that folks are trying to, to demonstrate that he is going to have some kind of momentum and and what kind of message comes out of South Carolina for both uh, Trump and, and and Biden will be will be interesting to watch. And Michigan, like you said, I think that that the, the American Arab population in Michigan is a really important constituency. It's a very important constituency for for the for the Democrats, if they sit, if they stay home, that's a lot of electoral votes that are on the table for uh, for the re Republicans and for for Trump to eventually take if if those votes just don't uh, don't show up. So it, you know it shows that uh, that again the, the conflict in the Middle East can have I think a very important effect, though not necessarily the one that Arab Americans want on on the outcome of the election. And I think that that'll be an interesting kind of personal choice that folks will make when they go into the ballot booth in um, in November. Which means that we need to start taking seriously what this government should do now to prepare for that. So we there's there's two dynamics here. We talked more at the year ahead about how the incitement of well far right white supremacy will spill over. But uh, the story lately has been about okay, how do we plan for a Trump administration given that it was unpleasant the last time? Yeah, and I think that it's interesting to see what the what the Trudeau government has done in terms of reconstituting a task force uh, that really is economically focused, both from trade and industry, in terms of the leadership of that. And while you know it, it seems to be a, a replay of what was done uh, leading up to the last election and in the in the immediate aftermath to try and figure out how to deal with Trump, I'm not sure that it's uh, that it's the right re response. I think that it might be uh, trying to frame what's happening in the United States in this electoral cycle as. Yes, it's complex. Yes, there's a lot at stake, but I'm not sure that that, that we're uh, as prepared as we need to be in terms of the capricious nature of a of a, of a new uh, Trump uh, uh, administration. 
He's not going to have the same kinds of folks around him. He's not going to have, I, I don't think, the same kind of, of vulnerability to pressure points from outside actors within Congress uh, or the Senate. Uh, and I think that that many of the states that border Canada that have real keen interests in making sure that the economic and trade relationship with us is, is as it historically has been and is strong and is robust, I, I think that we need to figure out a way to, to gird ourselves for, again, tearing up of trade agreements, more assertive challenges to our, our sovereignty, whether or not it's in the Arctic or uh, on, along our shared border, whether or not it's, it's also a far more hostile attitude towards, uh, towards NATO and collective defense than, uh, than has been in the past. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the whole concept of collective defense, whether or not that's NATO or NORAD, gets thoroughly turned on its head in a, in a second Trump administration. And I don't think we've thought this through at all. I think the NATO answer is pretty easy. I don't think there will be a NATO if Trump gets elected again. I just don't see it sticking around. NATO has always relied on the American willingness to show up. And Trump has said a lot of stuff over the past few years that say that he wouldn't have showed up if been called upon. And he's more bitter and resentful ever since, which gets to the Canadian side of thing, which is last time around, he was just sort of, uh, you know, pissed off at that sort of this perception of an unfair deal. This time around, he'd be motivated by resentment. It's going to be a resentment tour. And he resents Canada because... Trudeau did not bend the knee that there are plenty of video of Trudeau talking at, at, at the summits with other leaders of other democracies and all of them sort of like shaking their heads and making fun of, of, of Trump. And so that's going to be played ad nauseum. And so I, I think the next Trump administration that happens is going to be horrific for both Americans and people outside the United States because they, he's motivated by resentment and he's building a team. They're already building a deep team of the worst people you can find to staff all these positions. And there's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be friends of Canada in the administration. And the Republican Congress, if he wins, it's going to be a Republican Congress, both the House and the Senate. And there's not too many friends of Canada in the Republican Party. So I don't think we're going to have, we're going to be able to play the governors and do all this other kind of stuff that we did the last time around to, to moderate the effect. I think it's going to be pretty unmoderated, unmediated, and it's going to be really nasty. Yeah, and and I I also think that that the the dynamics of the campaign might actually bring out some of the more protectionist elements in the Democratic Party as well. So I don't think that either way uh, that this is necessarily going to be a, a smooth sailing for for uh, for Canada. Sorry to belabor the the, the nautical analogies. I think that we're in for a, for for some serious challenges to our economic and security interests moving forward, regardless of who uh, who wins uh, who wins the White House. But I also think that sort of the reverse is is true. I think that what happens in the United States is going to have an important effect on Canadian politics uh, moving forward. And there's a lot of conversation about who will be the best leader for Canada to manage that relationship moving forward. Will it be would it be a Trudeau if there's a, a a Trump a second Trump administration? Given the animosity, I mean, we, we've all read, you know, uh, about about how Trump really disliked Trudeau and that you know didn't like the fact that Trudeau was a better looking guy and that this was going to be a, a you know a very personal kind of uh, animosity between the two. Well, a Polyev led government for all of its uh, its challenges in terms of some of the folks that 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 would be there would would Polyev just given his capability to navigate a similar political space, would he be more effective at, at managing a capricious Trump, given that they speak the same language in the, on many uh, events? And well, the liberal strategy to portray, you know, uh, Poiliev as, as, you know, Trump's mini-me, will that, uh, quite frankly, backfire on the liberals because it will be clear that, that you know, 
Polyev will be more effective at managing that relationship. Well, if we think of Polyev as being more like Ted Cruz, I would say no. <laughs> that that the, one of the problems that Polyev has is, is I don't think he's very likable, and I think that he'll he'll very quickly rub Trump the wrong way, even though they might speak the same populist language. I don't think that Trump has has been really all that friendly to some of the other populists, but maybe it'll work. I mean, he you know if he hang out with Modi and hang out with Abe and hang out with Orban, then you can hang out with Polyev, I suppose. Well, I think either way, it's going to be transformational. And I think that, uh, you know, we're going to all have to watch watch that space. Uh, there's a lot that a lot of Canadian interests that are at play. There's a lot of, uh, I think, um, vulnerability that Canada is showing right now on the economic front. And if we have a, uh, a government in the United States that, that is going to be increasingly isolationist from both an economic and security point of view, I think that, that Canada is going to have to gird itself for some serious challenges to its own economic and uh, uh, just national sovereignty. Well, the, the challenge is that Canada has been surging for other trading partners to not supplant the United States, but to reduce our dependence on the United States. And that hasn't gone very well. Our relationship with India hasn't gone well. Our ch- relationship with China hasn't gone well. We've had good negotiations with the EU, but that only goes so far. The Europeans are often displeased about our protection of our dairy industry. The UK walked away from the free trade negotiations because of cheese, which seems like a particularly uh, odd breaking point. But Well, the reality is, is that every other country has their own dairy industry. All of our, all our boundaries of political life have been were written when there were more people in the dairy industry and in the farming industry. So there's a legacy where those part sectors of our economies are more powerful politically because we haven't revised our borders. Like if there was no American Senate, farmers would be much weaker in the United States, right? They're over empowered by the existing rules. In Canada, there's no reason why dairy farmers should have this sort of a, uh, of a stranglehold on major economic policy. But because they, you know, they matter in certain writings, if we haven't redrawn the writings effectively enough to reduce their power, that's that's a mistake of the past. And so the people who consume the dairy products who live in the cities in some ways have much less power over over stuff than the folks, the far, far fewer folks out in the hinterlands who have got the dairy cows and all that. It's an old story, yeah. it's not just a Canadian story. Just remember that whenever there's a new regulation in France, things get very ugly on the streets of France with all the tractors and all the rest. So at least our farm dairy farmers do it politely and dominate and cause us to spend $10 a pound of butter in a, in a very sweet and a nice way as opposed to the, the obnoxious way the French farmers do it. Yeah, we, I, we haven't seen too many, you know, uh, you know, piles of cow manure dumped in, in, in central Ottawa or Toronto and lit on fire as they have been in, in, in Paris. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are other kinds of raging dumpster fires in uh, in Ottawa that occasionally need to be uh, put out, you know. <laughs> Which, well, that's a great transition because we had a raging dumpster fire here in 2022 in January and February. And that has come back because a federal court has ruled that the Emergency Act was not appropriately applied. There's some debate about that. My favorite political scientist who studies court decisions, Emmett McFarland, thinks that this was a bad decision. So people should seek out his stuff because he's, he's usually pretty sharp on this stuff. But whether he's right or wrong, the court's decision is there. And now we have to wait for the Supreme Court to rule about whether the first court was correct on this. So how do it's, we respond when there's a burning pile of shit in the middle of downtown Ottawa? It's in Ottawa. Well, I think it's, look, I mean, I think I'm, I'm happy that, that this is being litigated. I think that it's really, really important that the rule of law prevail. And it's really important for Canada 
for the government and for Canadians to actually know what the appropriate parameters and what the appropriate use of what should be exceptional legislation like the Emergencies Act is. That doesn't negate that that what happened in Ottawa was an absolute dumpster fire and that there was an, uh, an urgent situation that needed to be resolved. The question is whether or not government at that point actually needed the exceptional powers given to it by the Emergencies Act in order to manage the situation. And I think that you know throughout the, uh, the crisis, there were opportunities for various actors to do their jobs without the use of the Emergencies Act that they simply didn't do. And whether or not it's at the provincial level or at the municipal level in Ottawa, there's a lot of criticism that needs to go around. And I think that the inquiry that was launched that looked at uh, the invocation of the Emergencies Act, I think, looked at the complexity of the issue. What I find fascinating is that the, the, the justice in, in the uh, inquiry said that it was reasonable to, to use the Emergencies Act. Now you have the federal court saying that it was unreasonable. And what's, what the two, uh, I think, judgments or the two decisions uh, had in common was that they both recognized that the other uh, conclusion was, you know, was, was rational, but that they had come on uh, to, to different conclusions themselves. That's why going to the court, uh, to the Supreme Court is going to be super important. But I think it talks about you know, what all of this shows is how important having a conversation about what the exceptional powers of government should be, when they should be called in, in, into use, who are the actors that need to be uh, brought to bear, and what are the tools that we have to uh, resolve this kind of complex, urgent situation. I think that that the use of, of police force, the use of the military, the use of, of other kinds of, of national security uh, instruments uh, needs to be clear for Canadians, and hopefully we'll get greater clarity for that moving forward. Yeah, I hope we get greater clarity. Uh, the, ch the challenge in the current environment is that there's bad faith actors that are going to use this decision to say that we live in a non-democracy, yada, yada, yada. The Emergency Act actually is not, it sounds draconian. It was not. The government did not, you know, do, it did not arrest lots of people and throw them in jail for years, it did not remove our so-called First Amendment rights, which we don't have. Uh, yeah. that the protesters were demanding. They got to have their free expression. It's just that they had to do it in a way that didn't dominate downtown in a particular kind of way forever. It'll be interesting to see what the courts say about it. I worry about how this decision that this court has will be weaponized in our disinformation environment. I think you're, you're right to be concerned there. 100%, I agree with you there. I think that there are all kinds of, of bad faith actors that are going to precisely spin that decision into, into saying that that all kinds of excesses were, were, were implemented in terms of the response. And, and you're right, they were all very, very mild in terms of, of actual tools. But the question is, you know, what what is that threshold that we should have exceptional powers that will uh, enable governments to uh, to call things and to use, uh, use various tools of state craft to, to manage the kind of situation that we had, not only in Ottawa, but I think at, in various places across the country and the, the effects that it had on our economy. And I think a lot of folks talked about what, you know, where is the threshold, for example, in terms of the urgent economic consequences that were being felt and whether or not the legislation that we have in place actually helps us manage the economic fallout. And here, you know, it goes back to our earlier conversation about how our friends in the U.S. felt that the, the blockades at, at borders were negatively affecting the supply chains and whether or not that in the, in the, even in the, in the short and medium term would affect our economic interests and would, you know, would, would you know, after an, an election, they'll point to those kinds of incidents and say, we need to, to repatriate uh, our supply chains within the U.S. So therefore, Canada, it's in our interest to find a way to, to again, 
mitigate the economic impacts of these kinds of, of, of crises. Yeah, I guess the fundamental thing that the two, the commission disagreed with the courts is the failure of the provinces to do their damn job in an emergency or not. And we live in a time where the provinces have been running, have been running rampant over the federal government on a variety of issues. And I don't think it's going to get any better, which leads to the second half of the emergency thing, which is we often have been talking on, the, on this podcast and elsewhere about how the pace of domestic emergency operations where the Canadian Armed Forces get involved has been exhausting the cap. And so there was a story recently about Bill Blair saying, well, the military doesn't want to do it and they're going to have to suck it up. My colleague, Phil Legasse, basically wrote a, a piece for his substack talking about this, about this is about civilian control of the military. The military doesn't want to do this stuff. I, we understand why they don't want to do this stuff. They don't see it as part of their identity. They don't see it as part of their mission. They don't, they don't get promoted based on how well they do this stuff. It is it, it taxes that their personnel who are getting tired rather than preparing for the battles abroad, taxes their equipment because their equipment then gets beaten up and you know moving people around in, in Canada. But at the end of the day, the Canadian military is there to help the Canadian people. And it turns out that Canadian people are more threatened by the effects of climate change than they are by Russian threats towards Latvia. And so we're tri tripling essentially our, our mission in Latvia, which is good tax the military heavily. The reality is domestic emergency operations actually are the things that Canadians care about. And since the military is fond of thinking themselves as an instrument of policy, they just have to think about, about a little bit more about how they are an instrument of domestic policy as well as foreign policy. Since we are not going to get a, a Canadian equivalent of FEMA, we are not going to get the provinces you know, fulfill their responsibilities. The military is just going to have to deal with the fact that their demand for this stuff is going to go up and there's not much they can do about it because it's not their job to dictate things to the to the politicians. Yeah. And I think that that's good. That's part of the culture change. I think that the military is going to have to adapt <laughs> to the future. Right. I think that, that, you know, that people in the military have had a certain view of their role historically. And, it, and that was correct. But I think moving forward, what are the kinds of of urgent responses that the politicians want the military to be able to to respond to. We just have to be realistic ab uh, about it. You know, we're going to have a new CDS. I think that that uh, that looking at 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 how we motivate people to join the forces in terms of the 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 diversity of their mission might need to be recalibrated in terms of the balance between missions abroad and missions domestically, and that that has to be built increasingly into the recruitment strategy and retention strategy and what we value. Uh, in terms of the 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 use of Canadian Canadian forces, I think where where I think the military is is rightly, and I think you you mentioned it in your in in your in your statements, concerned is that we haven't really valued the kind of uh, of domestic operations as much as perhaps we have to reward people and to make sure that their uh, that their contributions to that kind of domestic planning and execution of domestic operations gets into uh, effective career career management and career recognition for uh, for the Canadian forces and that we uh, we we build it more strategically into into their mandate and into their uh, into the types of resources that they have to to operate in that space. But the, you know, and you're right. I think that the the provinces have cornered the federal government. They haven't met their their obligations. They kind of look askance at Ottawa. You know, how come you're not stepping up? And the political heat ends up uh, hitting the the national government. And the national government is to, you know doesn't feel that it will win in a political battle by saying, well, we're not going to step up because it just looks like that they're abandoning Canadians in their hour of need. And, and no politician wants to be accused of abandoning 
uh, Canadians when they are in directly in harm's way, regardless of what the uh, the cause of that harm may be. I think Blair was simply being a realist, and I think that that it's going to be up to military planners uh, to to figure out how do we make sure that we have the right resources in the right places around the country to respond. Yeah, I think uh, the challenge here is that yes, culture change involves more than just in fostering better diversity and inclusion. It includes fostering a better attitude towards civilian control of the military. And it, and it may need to think about what their what their job is. I've, you know, whenever a defense review comes out, they always have the same four missions: defense of Canada, defense of North America, supporting missions abroad, and domestic emergencies. And so that that last one is always fourth. It needs to be tied for first. It, it needs to be tied for first. It needs to be a priority. Whenever you have four priorities, and the the last the last thing is not a priority. On the flip side of this, the trade-off that, that should be made is the federal government should not be as enthusiastic about cutting the military's budget. They have a personnel crisis. The way to solve the personnel crisis is partly, not entirely, but partly culture change, but partly to throw money at it. And if you're going to cut the military's budget, then it's going to come out of people's salaries. It's coming out of bases. It's going to come out of the things that cause people to join the military. And so if you're going to ask it to do more, you need to give it more money so that way it can do a better job of recruiting a larger percentage of Canadians to get involved in this effort. So that way there's, you know, we're not, it's not like the, the under, an understaffed agency is doing all the heavy lifting. Make us, you know, the way that, partly the way to get it staffed is to pay it. Pay people. Pay people, give them the money. And if, if it's uncomfortable for the government to have deficits when they're facing a, a, a party that says they need to have, have deficits, the argument they need to come back with is they need to support the, the people of Canada uh, by funding an agency that is, the, you know, is ultimately not the agent of last resort as much as the military would like it to be. It is the first responder. It just is. That's the reality. And it's going to be the reality. And so we need to pay the first responders what we need to pay them to make them do their job. So I think that's the trade-off. Get, you know, if you if you can't make the hard decisions to force the province to do their job, then pay the people that you're asking to do the job for them. And if the military gets more money to do that, then maybe it'll make it easier for them to finesse the culture change domestic within the military. Yeah, I think if you if you pay people, if you recognize and you value them and you may actually make their 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 lives easier in terms of of, of actually stepping up and, and being those playing those kinds of roles for Canadians that Canadians expect, I think that that will go a long way in addressing uh, addressing the gaps. Uh, but it has to be around paying people better. It has to be around making sure that that we treat them with respect, uh, that we're clear with them when, with, when they're recruited. This is exactly what they're being recruited for, as opposed to, you know, pretending that this is going to be a life overseas and, and you know, have a, an unrealistic uh, description of what their mandate might be when the reality of their day to day is going to be quite, uh, quite different. So I think that combination of honesty and investment uh, it w w would help in addition to the culture change that you talked about, which is making sure that, that the, the place is, is far more inclusive, that the place is far more respectful, uh, treats people with dignity and, and addresses uh, a lot of the other challenges that, that are part of the culture uh, that I think have, have caused many people to, to reflect on whether or not they want to be part of an institution that, that has the kind of history that the Canadian Armed Forces, unfortunately, has had. We wanted to talk uh, at the end of this about Israel. So a lot has happened uh, in the Gaza-Israel situation, the latest being that the International Court of Justice has ruled that there's a threat of genocidal acts taking place. They're not, they're not accusing Israel of genocide, but they are putting the onus on Israel to 
uh, monitor itself to make sure it does not engage in acts of genocide. This has been uh, one of the pivotal arguments about what's going on here is how critical should we be of Israel in its response to the horrific violence on October 7th. Arthur and I engaged in much conversation before this podcast about this because we don't see exactly eye to eye on what proportionality means. And I, we can't get into too much of this because we, we, we are running out of time. But I want to get your commentary, Arthur, on what you think about this decision and what do you think about Canada's role in this? And I'll, I'll poke back a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> you know, poke, poke away. I think it's really important for us to have these kinds of conversations. And the first thing I, you know, for me that's really important about having these kinds of conversations is that we can disagree about uh, our conclusions and disagree about a, a wide range of things without sort of falling into a trap of demonization of one another and that our, our, our disagreement over the substance and over the facts somehow uh, should undermine our value as individuals who have come to divergent conclusions when, uh, when presented with, uh, with similar facts. So, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for the conversation because I think we've been, you know, we understand one another uh, that we don't necessarily agree, but that that's also okay. And we can still go grab a beer uh, after we have that kind of conversation. So a couple of things. One, on the International uh, Court of Justice and the South African uh, complaint and invocation of the Genocide Convention uh, against Israel, I think that that was a misguided thing that South Africa did. I think that South Africa was, quite frankly, playing playing politics that had very little to do uh, with the actual facts of the matter. But quite frankly, I think I saw South Africa's action within within a political kind of context where South Africa is increasingly aligned with Russia, with China, and was using lawfare to try and and uh, undermine Israel's uh, right to confront uh, the threat that Hamas posed. Now, should Israel face consequences for breaches of international law? Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of, uh, of legitimate discussion about whether or not Israel has broken international humanitarian law. That is different than accusing Israel of genocide, uh, which is the crime of crimes. And I think that that Canada's uh, response, particularly to the IC, uh, ICJ claim by South Africa, was mealy-mouthed. Uh, I think that the prime minister tried to firmly implant himself uh, on the uh, on the fence. It, for me, it was sort of typical Canadian foreign policy, um, you know, mush mouth. Uh, in that, I've heard this from a lot of uh, uh, you know, in my time in diplomacy, from from colleagues from other countries. Who, who say two things about Canada. One, that Canada has never seen a fence that it doesn't like to sit on. And number <laughs> two, that Canada is always, quote, on the, on the cusp of the emerging consensus, which means that it doesn't want to take a view because it doesn't want to piss anybody off. And I think that, that, that for these kinds of things, we do need to be far more clear-eyed and that we need to be far more uh, direct. I think Canada can continue to criticize Israel and should criticize Israel when it believes that its actions on the ground are, are disproportionate and that do violate international law. I do think that Canada should have been very clear that the invocation of the genocidal, a genocide convention was completely spurious and without merit and uh, should have uh, very clearly aligned itself with the UK, with the US, with Germany, uh, and with other countries that have rejected the South African claim. That was really well stated. I'm a little frustrated on this because I, I do think that Canada has taken stands in various places. We we, we lost lives in Afghanistan. We we have taken a good strong stand on, on behalf of Ukraine. 
We weren't waiting to figure out who the who which, which way the winds were blowing to support Ukraine. But you know, again, that domestic politics helps with that because we have Ukrainian American voters, and, and so that does, does these things. I do think that this government is caught in a difficult spot because there are Jewish Canadians in there, there are Muslim Canadians who are on opposite sides of this. And so is this traditional Canadians being feeling the winds blowing and, and sitting on the fence for internationally because they don't offend anybody else in the world? Or is it more domestically that they're par paralyzed by the fact that no matter which way they step, they're going to alienate a key constituency one way or the other? But having said that, I haven't used, I've been trying to avoid genocide war because it is inflammatory. On the other hand, when I hear people call accuse Hamas of having genocidal intent, I always think of how genocide is committed by those who have power. And in this situation, one side has more power than the other. And we see that in the numbers. 1,000 Israeli dead, something like 26,000 Palestinian dead. And you see Israeli politicians in the cabinet talk about ethnic cleansing. I, I used to think the Israeli position was not to ever recognize that the Arabs who fled, the, or the Palestinians who fled in 1948 were persuaded by the Israelis to do so. My history when I grew up in, in Hebrew school was, they just disappeared one night and it was, the Israelis had nothing to do with it. And I learned in college the, the word Napka. And then ever since then, you know, I've heard, seen Israelis try to avoid responsibility for that. And then when you have this leadership in Israel call for a second Napka, which is the expulsion of, of Palestinians from the occupied territories, that might not mean that there's genocide going on, but we can see the potential for it, that we see ethnic cleansing going on, that we've seen, it's not clear what the, the Israeli strategy has been, but we've seen enough conversations about the use of force to drive Palestinians to the southern part of Gaza, and hopefully, not mine, hopefully, they're, the, the, these politicians saying this, hopefully pushing them beyond Gaza into Egypt, so that way the refugee camps are outside of Israel and the Palestinian problem becomes somebody else's problem. That looks a lot like ethnic cleansing, and Ethnic cleansing and genocide are related. I had a hard time trying to make the distinction with my own family, with my own daughter, who's uh, to the left of me. And it's a hard, it's a hard conversation to have because ethnic cleansing should be seen as being horrific and awful. And I'm not saying the Israelis have completed a campaign of ethnic cleansing, but it's hard to see what otherwise the, the military strategy has been to depopulate parts of Gaza by turning them into free fire zones. And so, I'd rather have the international community raise the question of genocide before it happens and, and put pressure on a country to, to change the way it is using force than to go, hey, genocide happened. That really was bad. And that's sort of what we did with Rwanda, right? We didn't intervene as the genocide was happening in Rwanda. I'm not saying that Israel is, is, is engaged yeah. in, in, in genocide like Rwanda, but I am saying that we rarely ever prevent anything because prevention, the Benefits of prevention always seem to be much less uh, clear than the costs of prevention. And so I I don't know enough about international law and I don't know enough about the International Court of Justice to have any confidence in any of this. And I do see your point that having, you know, I always wonder how united the BRICs are in anything, but having South Africa be an agent of the Russians in this, and I, I, I can see how that might be the case. And so that might raise questions about this. But at the same time, I think raising the concerns that one side has overwhelming power and maybe using it in a way that will destroy in part, if not in whole, a large hunk of one group because of their identity. The challenge here is, is Hamas being targeted or Palestinians being targeted? And the one I fully accept that Hamas should be targeted. Targeting all Palestinians because of the crimes of, 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 of a subsection of the Palestinians, that sounds like quantitative punishment. And I think I'm against quantitative punishment. 
So I'm against collective punishment as well. Uh, and I think that that intent uh, has a lot to, to to play in terms of how this uh, this conflict uh, plays out. And I think, uh, and we've talked about this before. I find the current Israeli government, uh, like Netanyahu, and uh, and in particular uh, some of his ministerial uh, uh, counterparts, particularly Get Ben Gvir. Uh, and Smotrich to be offensive human beings. And I think that the kind of language that they engage in absolutely should be setting off alarm bells in terms of the prospects for ethnic cleansing and, and the prospects of, of collective punishment of Palestinians because prima facie, folks like Ben Gvir say it and they participate in events that encourage it. But I think that the, the, there is enough distance between uh, folks like that and then how the war is actually prosecuted and the intent of the state uh, to make a distinction between... Isn't one uh, of these guys the defense minister? Sorry? Isn't one of these guys you're mentioning the, the defense minister? No. Just... No, uh, it's not. Uh, so it's, it's, it's Gallant that's, uh, 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 that's, the, um, uh, that's the defense minister who was brought in as part of the emergency uh, uh, cabinet. So he was kind of a more centrist. Benvir is the national security minister, so he's sort of like oh, there was. That, that, that's much better. <laughs> but he's not part of the war cabinet, so I mean, so that I think there is a distinction, uh, distinction to be uh, to be made. But I, I, I will never defend Benvir. I mean, the man is, is is totally horrifying, and the kinds of things that he says and does are horrifying, particularly in terms of empowering uh, the settlers in the West Bank. Uh, to to be absolutely uh, agents of chaos and agents of ethnic cleansing and agents of of, of violence against against in, innocent Palestinians, so they they must be held accountable. But I think that there are other tools in the international toolbox other than the use of the the genocide convention to hold Israel and Israeli leaders to account. Not least of which is is Israel's own domestic legal framework that I think should be holding and political body politic. That should be holding these individuals uh, to account. That's why I keep on saying we need an election in, in in Israel to change the government. And and I think that the consequences will be a change in in, in strategy and hopefully the development of a of a better strategy to address the threat uh, of Hamas. But uh, again, I I actually think that that the use of the genocide convention is uh, is the wrong one. For me, also, one of the things that, that, that seems to be absent from this conversation is around change of leadership in the Palestinian uh, Authority and change in leadership within, uh, within Gaza. Because I think that so long as, as both parties perceive that there are rejectionist uh, leaders that do not want peace, that do not want a two-state solution, there is very little leverage that those who want it within either camp uh, to actually uh, take on positions of power. And until there is a, a, a fundamental change in the dynamic of leadership on both the Israeli and the Palestinian sides, I think that there is a lot of room for pessimism in this conflict. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that's why I'm hoping that at the very least there's a change in leadership in the Israeli side. Um, I, I have no no insight or, or, or on how you, you affect change on the Palestinian side, but I think that this is why Israelis need to take the first step because there is an asymmetry in power, absolutely, and the the, the consequences for for Israel to take the risk are lower than the consequences for the Palestinians to take the risk. That's why I think the onus and change of leadership is on the Israeli side. Well, and there's also one of the differences is that. There's two big differences in my mind. One is 
uh, Israel has a process, they have elections. Uh, and while Daniel was in the process of trying to under, uh, destroy the judicial system in, in Israel, uh, there was still there's still elections and we'll, we'll hope we have hope that, that the results are really respected, at least in Israel, if not in um, countries further to our south. Um, yeah. And the second thing that, that I always draw a distinction is that while Israel is engaged in awful behavior, it's actually aiming to protect its people, whereas Hamas's awful pe uh, behavior is often deliberately endangering its people for political gain. This 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 whole thing was Hamas trying to trigger an Israeli overreaction, which has now gotten 26,000 Palestinians killed. And uh, the Hamas should be owning that as much as the Israelis are. Uh, and I do do find problems with the, the conversations where people we forget that that Hamas is an awful, you know, it's an awful actor. They have awful attitudes about all kinds of things. Uh, and while we might want to, I, I do believe that the Palestinians are, deserve sovereignty and deserve self-determination. Uh, I certainly don't want it to be uh, with them being led by Hamas because Hamas is awful to not only the, the Israelis, but they're awful to the Palestinians. Palestinians, absolutely. I mean, it's people forget that it's a, it's you know, it's a, it's an Islamist fundamentalist violent organization, uh, and uh, people should take them at the, at their uh, at their word. Um, and I, you know, I share the the same outcome as uh, I think that that, that you want to see. But I want to see Palestinians living free in security and prosperity uh, in in a democratic state that 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 reflects their you know the will of their their people. But I want that to exist in parallel to the same kind of democratic uh, Israel that lives in peace and prosperity uh, in, in beside uh, beside uh, an independent Palestine. The question is how we get there. And, and I think that there's a lot of folks way smarter than me uh, who over many, many decades have been trying to get us there. Uh, and we're still we're still failing. Um, you know, you're a you're a professor, you're an academic. I think there's a lot of political theory that <laughs> people need to exhaust themselves through conflict sometimes before you get to that point of transformational leadership. Um, I don't know what that point of exhaustion might be for Israelis and Palestinians, but I know I'm pretty exhausted by it all. And, uh, you know, hope that, uh, that again, like I said, that transformational leadership on both sides comes to play that realizes that the status quo is untenable for both peoples and that they really uh, need a different approach uh, if, uh, if we aren't to see the kind of horrifying images and horrifying numbers from both sides uh, nobody wants to see uh, tens of thousands of Palestinians dead. No one wants to see uh, thousands of, of, of Israelis dead. Um, I think that uh, that we need to change uh, change the the conversation uh, and change the the dynamic uh, if we're to avoid it in the future and not perpetuate this conflict. Well, well, just one last note. Uh, you raised what the academic community call a mutually hurting stalemate. Mm -hmm. That's when you get movement towards some kind of agreement. The challenge is, is the three parts of that phrase, mutual, hurting, and stalemate. Uh, is, is the pain mutual? Mm, I'm not sure it is right now. I, I, you know, are, uh, are both sides being hurt by, the, by a stalemate? And the stalemate part requires both sides to think that they can't improve their position by continuing. And I'm I'm not sure that's the case. I, I'm convinced it's not the case right now by either Hamas or by Netanyahu. In part because both of them ultimately 
don't really care that much about who's hurt on their side. Uh, uh, I don't think, I think Netanyahu cares more about staying in power than he cares about what is best for Israel, or else he wouldn't be here in the first place. And Hamas certainly doesn't care about its people because it basically said, hey, we have all these hostages. Yeah. Go ahead and kill them because it's going to make us look good and you look bad. So, and I, uh, I, I agree with you completely on that in terms of, but that's again around those two actors. Yeah, and that's why I'm hoping that the, that the calculus and the body politic yeah. on both sides uh, is, is changing. And I, and I do think, you know, this is where I think uh, there is an asymmetry. I think that the, that the tolerance for pain is different on, on either side. And that's unfortunate, but I actually think that that's a reality. And I do think uh, my sense is that there is an, a, a change in perspective in terms of the tolerance for the status quo um, that has shifted as a result of October 7th, for good or for bad, uh, on, on both the Israeli side. I don't know enough about the Palestinian side, but I do get a sense that uh, that more Israelis feel that that uh, what led them to that, uh, that point uh, needs to change. Uh, how it changes, we're, we're still to see, and the only way that we'll know on the Israeli side is through an electoral process. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do, I do get a sense that that more and more Israelis do not ascribe to the Netanyahu uh, and his uh, cohorts' uh, approach to to the conflict. Uh, it, we'll we'll see, inshallah. All right. On that note, uh, I want to really thank you for your time. Uh, really want to thank you for this exchange. Uh, you always help me think more clearly about these things, even when I disagree with you on, on some of the some of the stuff. Um, uh, next up, appropriately enough, uh, is a conversation I had with Stanislava Mladnova a few weeks ago. She's a global fellow at the Browns University Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Studies. She recently finished a book that is now hitting the shelves as we speak called When Rambo Meets the Red Cross, Civil Military Engagement in Fragile States. Um, we didn't talk about some of that dynamic. Uh, we have different opinions, for instance, about the key actor on the ground in Palestine, in the Palestinian territories, uh, doing the work there. Um, and so, uh, as I said, we had this conversation a couple weeks ago, but the, the stuff that we're talking about is enduring. So stick around for my conversation with Stanislava. And Arthur, always a pleasure. Uh, I wish you luck in teaching your dog not to draw blood. Uh, and uh, enjoy the rest of the winter. Thanks, Steve. Nice talking to you, and, and thanks for, for the conversation. Talk to you soon. Sure. Today at Battle Rhythm, we have Stanislava Madanova. She is a she's a non-resident fellow at Brown's Center for Human Rights and Humanitarian Studies. And she's with us today to, to talk a bit about her book, When Rambo Meets the Red Cross, which is one of the best titles I've heard, not just in 2024, but in quite some time since the first week of 2024. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Steve. It's great to be with you. The first thing is, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into a position where you'd end up writing a book about civil military relations and humanitarian crises and, and the intersection between those two worlds? Thank you. Actually, my background is predominantly as a practitioner. It's what inspired me to do this. I spent a couple of years as a pro-lad in Afghanistan with the ISAF mission from 2012 to 14, after which um, I sort of re-entered into the <clears throat> strategic part of the international affairs and security fields. and 
really uh, focused on West Africa uh, with my time at USIP, where uh, I kind of went back to the field in a grassroots capacity, trying to bring together security and um, CSO, civil society organizations in uh, dialogue and how to better improve their relationships with local communities. CivMil has been really it's permeated through my career, but also through my interest in trying to find better answers for these actors to come closer together. Excellent. Well, let's start at the, a little bit earlier in time, which is how does one become a political advisor to the NATO mission in Afghanistan? My career uh, in Afghanistan at NATO really started by doing what, what anyone can do, which is go to the NATO website and look for jobs, which might be applicable <laughs> to your interest, to the things you want to do. <clears throat> and I started off uh, in NATO headquarters working to really help NATO figure out how to reorganize and consolidate some of its functions, resources. This was during, this was at the 60th anniversary of NATO, to age myself a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, And then I was really interested in the core business of the organization. And I took uh, what was really a background in sort of organizational analysis. And believe it or not, it has a huge role in the international affairs sector. Mm -hmm. When it comes to resources and structures and budgets and decisions, uh, it very much drives many of the themes that we talk about and and the kind of more theoretical level. I applied and uh, got the Kabul uh, as a young Polad, and I was responsible for dealing with everything which was seen kind of non-militaresque, humanitarian, human rights issues, economic dynamics of the giant footprint, all the things which were not considered. They were kind of within the premise of other organizations, not NATO. But now, 10 years later, we understand that security is a holistic business. It's not just a one theme or one topic. Everything is interconnected. Yes, but as as working for NATO, which was saw its day job as military stuff in Afghanistan, your job was to sort of connect NATO to all the other actors in in the country who were doing everything that was sort of security-ish, but not actually hardcore military stuff. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, it turns out that we cannot be talking about efficient military programs or military planning without thinking about the humanitarian impact or human rights. We can't talk about security and its sustainability without talking about the economic situation. (laughs) So it was really important for the NATO mission from a security standpoint and a political standpoint to know how the, uh, at the time, Jiroa, the Afghan uh, government was going to pursue kind of this more sustainable path to holistic uh, governance model. And now that we're looking back from 2024, back 10 years, with what has happened in Afghanistan the past few years, how do you look back at that, at what you did and, and what NATO was doing? Does it provide you with any lessons about what to do, what not to do? Does it just cause you to tear your hair out? As Afghanistan was falling, you know, what, what, what did it mean to you? I think any one of us who uh, spent sometime in our careers, especially at a younger age, it was very difficult to, from an emotional standpoint, to um, see what happened. It wasn't just me. So many of of my colleagues in the uh, military community kind of, you know, grew up with these wars. They grew up with the intervention in in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it was very difficult from, from a personal standpoint. But also it's important to remove ourselves from the kind of immediate shock 
and say what went wrong and how could it be applied differently. And it's a, that's a dissertation in and of itself. I know a lot of people are thinking about it and talking about it, uh -huh. but there's one very wise saying that I always remembered throughout my young years and kind of in my own cultural background that uh, you can always take something away by force, but you cannot give something by force to someone. And the key thing is, and connecting into the research that I've been doing is that when doing these engagements, uh, the host nation government, the host nation force, some of the training missions that I was looking at in, in the wider research to, you need to have a partner in the ground that understands it, wants it, and can apply it and apply it in the long term. And I think the model for building up the ANSF was probably something which might have made sense from a Western model, but perhaps was more difficult to apply in the local context. Well, then you came back from there and along the way, went to graduate school. You now have a PhD. And I assume your book is based on your dissertation. So tell us a little bit about when Rambo meets the Red Cross. What is the question you're trying to answer with the book? And then what is your answer? The question I'm trying to answer with the book is whether special operations, U.S. special operations forces, civil affairs units, and non-governmental organizations can be effective partners in fragile spaces. I examine what is really the majority of warfare today, which is a vicious cycle of poverty and insecurity and uh, sources of instability, not conventional conflict, where the military is present but is not in charge, where they're training other militaries or building capacity of other militaries, and of course how they engage with the civilian environment, be it um, populations or non-governmental organizations. Um, so I was really interested to see how CivMil occurs when SOF deploy in a variety of missions, because oftentimes we Think of CivMil as like complex emergencies, natural disasters, like that's it. The big doom and gloom scenarios. Yet civil military engagement occurs across almost everything that the military touches on the ground. And it was important for us to get a holistic picture as to what that relationship looked like. Okay, so you're trying to understand the, the impact and the relationships between the military and all different kinds of societal actors when they show up someplace. And... So you don't look at all the countries in the world and all the situations in the world. So what did you decide to look at? Actually, I did look at uh, quite a few countries. <laughs> I, I did a global examination. I wanted to take myself away from, as I mentioned, one specific scenarios and looked at SOF in its functional format because these teams deploy to the field. They're always teams of fours or it could be a 12-member team of special operations forces. They're very lethal. It's no secret. This is their primary objective. Uh, and I talked to as many of them as I could across a, as global a presence as I could and really tried to identify micro trends in their interaction with civilian actors. I did that because I feel that many times we really constrict CivMil, as I mentioned, to a, a single like CivMil in Mali, CivMil in, in Haiti, CivMil in peacekeeping, CivMil in, you know, mm. the one thing. And yet CivMil is all around us. And I wanted to see what was in the kind of DNA makeup of these teams that make or break their interaction with civilian actors. Okay. So you're looking at American Special Operations Forces or operating around the globe in a variety of environments. 
and you're trying to see whether it worked or not or whether they made an impact or not. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what your dependent variable was. Was it success? What were you trying to understand exactly? I was trying to get insight into what constrains them in their interaction with civilian organizations. And the same on the other side. What is it within the NGO DNA makeup that keeps them away or we think is completely different than what the military does? So it was really to gain an insight into how can the military balance meeting its security hard core objective and at the same time act as a humanitarian and development actor? As we know, the military has a whole budget line around uh, doing development and humanitarian quick impact projects to, for tactical gains. So what drives that being successful vis-a-vis the eyes of the community and what drives it to be successful vis-a-vis their engagement with NGOs, if they decide to engage with NGOs at all, which sometimes they do not? Well, then that leads to the next question, which is, what were your answers to the question? What drove their relationships, their decisions, their constraints? So some of the some of the answers were uh, things that we already know. We've we've just not delved into too much, which is that number one, it is very much personality based. The best civil coordination structures, which of which we've had many over the years, starting in the early 1990s. I mean, we have a you know a whole organization, you know, so this is what they do. Their Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. We have some fantastically well thought out structures and guidelines to um, help the civil military interaction on the ground. What I found is that with the lack of the right personalities at the table, those can be undermined. Same in the other direction. If in the absence of good guidelines, in the absence of good policy or kind of a, a good direction as to how it should happen, the personalities at the table can very much make the civil military coordination occur. There, there's actually three types that I talk about in the book. If I can elaborate on them, sure. uh, if, if that's okay with you. Okay. <laughs> So it really goes back to the question of what drives the success of the relationship. And what I did is I took all of my respondents from my nearly 100 interviews on both the NGOs and the military sides, and I sort of separated them into the kinds of personality that, that's uh, from, again, from the, from the audio discussions, the kinds of personalities that sounded like they could be more positive and open to the relationship and the ones that were not. And I really grouped them into three categories categories which I call the the loyalists the bridge builders and the converted and they're kind of self-explanatory in the titles, but it really had to do with, um, again, on both sides, the civil affairs piece and the NGO piece. Uh, the loyalists were kind of the, the people who, I didn't get too many of those because they they may not have seen the merit of, of me trying to tackle this research, but they were kind of very committed to the mission and they thought that really what they did was be it on the security or development humanitarian side was the most important thing and kind of like everybody should follow in the lead you know loyal to the mission loyal to the approach uh, loyal to the objective and the other extreme were the converted and i think this was kind of a group that had i would say become disenfranchised with the notion that there could be a a constructive civil military engagement. You know, the NGOs were always going to, they were kind of the opposite. Like the NGOs were always going to oppose the lethal approach of the military and the military just thought saw the NGOs as kind of getting in, in the way, uh, which is closer to the loyalists. But on the converted side, they had sort of completely enmeshed in this environment and seen that it, it's actually NGOs can be 
ineffective and that's really a bad thing and the military is too lethal and that's also a really bad thing so it was the other extreme of the loyalist group the most fascinating one is the the middle the bridge builders and the bridge builders really saw the value of being open to the conversation understanding that they don't have all the answers understanding that you have to sit at the table and meet with the ngos because they are such an important uh, part of the environment or on the NGO side, you have to sit and meet with the military. You cannot execute programming without security. So it was really fascinating to see the questions that they asked, the stuff that they were responding to in the interviewing. I did pretty open, kind of open-ended um, with some uh, probing questions, asking open-ended questions with what, how, and why. It, re it really became more of a, a people sharing their grievances in terms of how important this is, but also how difficult. But that didn't mean that we shouldn't engage with the other actor because they're both equal parts in the space. So it's partly personality-based, but was there anything else that explained, you know, sort of systematic variation across the world? Was it the kind of mission? Was it the kind of NGOs they were working with? That's right. So... In examining the soft civil affairs units, what becomes clear is really several factors in their similarities. I have taken a very famous Canadian scholar, Donna Winslow. I'm sure many in our audience have heard of her. Uh, she wrote a very famous article called Strange Bedfellows. And she talks about the military and NGOs being very different, culturally different, hierarchically different, budgetary reporting structures, and so on. But in my comparison, I actually challenged some of some of her findings and said, look, if you actually step out of the conventional large-scale military and look at these small teams, they're not unsimilar to NGOs. They have to be, uh, these small civil affairs teams have to be adaptable, just like the NGOs have to be adaptable. They're pretty flat. There's not a huge hierarchy the way there is in the conventional military. At the project level, a, a big a difference is always about DOD has all this money, NGOs don't have the money. At the project level, that's actually not the case. They're very comparable. They don't have the luxury of large sums of money. Uh, this is not to confuse us with what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan with the commander, uh, Commander's Emergency uh, Response uh, Program, which actually was just the opposite. The military did have a lot of money to do this kind of work. The other thing is that we always think of, you know, NGOs specialize in one thing. They specialize in medicine or education, human rights, where SOV just specialize in security. That's not the case at all, uh, or, or not, not the case fully, I should say. Both of these actors need to be able to to be both generalists and specialists. Um, civil affairs do have expertise in these various areas. They can be medics, they can be engineers, they can do education, they can do governance. But what we find that at the field level, again, these actors sort of converge closely together in that they both need this, a certain level of specialty and a certain level of general skills to operate and meet the needs of the local population. I want, I'm curious as to how the military, the soft teams that you were talking to felt when you told them that they were, they, they were actually a lot like NGOs. It's interesting because the military, during the interviewing, uh, I did almost 100 interviews for this research, and it's, it's probably split about, I would say, uh, 40, 60 for the most part, 60 being the military maybe even a little bit higher. They were very interested. They really wanted to understand the NGOs and they were very open to what it is that they were doing wrong. 
Now, let's not confuse the military having this mantra of we need to get as much information as possible to meet our security objective that, that no one hands down no one is no one is disputing that they do have objectives in mind they are lethal this is kind of their primary task but they also understand that in this increasing fragile space where military humanitarian and development actors are coming closer together, they need to be able to work well with others. Mm -hmm. And they also know that the lethal missions of, uh, of the global war on terror over the last couple of decades has not done them any favors. Civil affairs are the soft arm of the U.S. military. Uh, this is what they do. They are not, you know, the, the kind of sort of kicking down doors type. Mm -hmm. That's not their function. Even soft, going back historically, were these warrior diplomats that could go and negotiate and work among populations with cultural skills and language skills. And we have gotten away from that. And as I was engaging in the research, they actually didn't disagree. They felt that, yes, we have to do all of these things. We do it for security reasons, but we must know how to interact with the populations because we've seen what it's like to lose them when we are not able to do that. I guess one of the questions that, that keeps jumping out to me is how did we able to get to do this research? Because you're dealing with the, the most secretive part of the, the armed forces that, for instance, when I was doing research on NATO Afghanistan, I was very aware that there were special operations forces that had different rules to operate than their conventional forces. And I would hear various things, but it was very hard to do anything systematic about it. And so when I was writing a book with my friend Dave Arswald about the rules that countries had for their troops in Afghanistan, I couldn't really, we sort of bracketed off the special operators because we just couldn't get the information. But you were able to interview large, a certain number of, of, of special operators. So how were you able to do that? Was it because it was sufficiently in the past or is it that you were, ta you were talking to individual units that you developed connections with? And how, how, how did you do that very difficult task of talking to the secret squirrels? Believe it or not, when I looked at the civil affairs engagement, it's all in the open Mm -hmm. terrain. Um, I did not talk to the SEALs. I did not talk to the secret missions that the Green Berets uh, execute. Uh, this was not within the premise of the research. Everything that um, I talked to the civil affairs folks about mm -hmm. were things that they have talked with or done with the civic population. So by default, the tranche of soft engagement that I looked at uh -huh. is out in the open domain. So there was there was really nothing uh, secret. And, uh, and when I did do the research, having worked in a classified environment, I always told my interviewees, you know, don't tell me anything that you're not going to kind of write home about on a, on a postcard. So it was very important to distinguish between the two. And yes, these things are very much in, in out in the operating environment. And there's also a huge amount of literature that I drew on uh -huh. that others have written about. Okay. And so you are, were studying how these units interacted with non-government organizations. I guess one hypothesis would say, would be that the military would have a much easier time dealing with the non-government organizations that are out there in the wilderness that are run by veterans because they have a similar language, similar background, similar you know ideas in their heads, similar doctrine, if you will. So did you find that to be the case that that the, that they had a, it was easier to engage, or was it that familiarity breeds contempt? And most of the and veterans they were dealing with were not fans of the military because they had experienced life in the military. Which way did it go? No, qu uh, quite on the contrary. Veteran-founded organizations in this space are facilitators for this yeah. relationship. Uh -huh. They're an easy go-to, uh, and that can be a good and a bad thing. First of all, in it's, and I and I want to, you know, there's positives and negatives to that. And let, me, let me start with the positives. The positives are that these seasoned operators, many of them have, you know, 10 years, 20 years under their belt. They know how to navigate these environments. You can deploy 
employ an NGO run by a group of veterans who have the skills. They've probably been to the places where they're going back and doing humanitarian assistance now under their NGO hat. They know the locals, they know the environment, they they kind of know things inside the wire, outside the wire. And and they've received training. I mean, this is this is again what they they've spent half of their career, all of their career doing. And that's that's very useful and it's a good thing. I mean if I if I had to pick deploying an up, you know, a person that has the skill set to navigate these fragile environments and someone that's never been in them, I probably would have to make a very informed decision about, you know, what causes more risk. So they're already seasoned to to begin with. The negative around that, of course, is that that security prism, it's very hard to get rid of it. You, You can't, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's very hard to not see everything through the prism of security. And the more you think about it, it kind of is like, well, if you look for it, it's going to be there. And that's that's important for us to understand because it can change um, sort of the, the interaction. And do we now have different types of NGOs? Oh, the ones that are completely civilian and have no uh, staff with military background and the ones who do. And of course, that's also not a straightforward answer because everyone knows the uh, useful skill set that military veterans have in these organizations, in- including the UN, who oftentimes recruit people, uh, preferably with a with a military background. The negative thing that's also happening on this front is that sometimes they can be accredited or not accredited. And when I say that, I mean, are they part of the humanitarian structure? Are they part of the cluster system? What are they actually delivering? And how they plug into the space also goes alongside with how they fund themselves and to whom they're accountable. Mm-hmm. It's very different if you're a publicly funded NGO versus if it's an NGO that you and I decide to give to because we believe in their cause. So these are very important factors because it drives what they can do and to whom they're accountable in the process. So uh, now that you finished the book and are now uh, promoting it, what is sort of the one or two big punchlines that you want either the public to get about it or what you would tell a policymaker? The first thing I would say is that fragile spaces, which are ridden with vicious poverty, insecurity, lack of economic opportunity, all the things that we see in what was once described as kind of uh, the three-block war, which is that it's not fully combat and security actors probably would have to get involved in some form of security, you know, watching over the neighborhood and, you know, humanitarian assistance. This is becoming increasingly the space in which security and NGO actors are operating. By 2030, uh, you know, 2.3 billion people are going to be living in these spaces. So we need to understand how these actors for whom there will be a need, absolutely, we have to have security, we have to have basic services provision. Uh, And of course, it all needs to be, you know, led by the governments in these spaces. We have to find a way uh, to work better together. It doesn't mean that we need to blend security and development humanitarian assistance. Though the reality on the ground seems to show us that this is already happening. They're already blending. Uh, So we need to find better ways to work together. And we also need to think about how organizationally NGOs, be it um, local side and within the international structure, or the military itself are adapting to this space. The military knows that it cannot kind of, you know, lethally achieve all of its missions. And also there's a lot of discussion around, well, Humanitarian development projects are now within the military's objective. Well, there's a whole budget line within the U.S. 
DOD budgets, which gives it the power to do exactly that. And, and DOD does it all the time. So it needs to find a better way to work with these actors. Excellent. And, and I guess uh, one of the questions I always often ask people is, what was the biggest surprise along the way when you're doing the research? What was either a big lesson or just a story about something that happened to you while you were asking pesky questions? I think probably the biggest surprise was how interested people were to understand this. Um, for someone that had done it on the ground, really more on the strategic level, you always think that people have figured this out. You always think that, oh, but people in, people in the field know this, like they've been doing it for years. And what surprised me most is just how hungry they were to try to find answers. And now that the book is out, I've warned them, I don't have really so many answers as I really have more questions for all of us. And this is how we can maintain the relationship in the conversation by staying in, staying in the conversation, asking more questions of each other. Well, that, that raises the, the obvious question, which is what's next for you? What Are you doing another research project based on this? Is What's your next thing? I think probably I would like to explore more of the space on the veteran-led organizations. This is not a, a small topic in this discussion because a lot of SOF, you know, SOF used to be about 30,000. This was kind of roughly the number of SOF operators the military was training. And at the height of the wars, they reached up to 70,000. Wow. And now this is again, dwindling down, but we are heavily pushing into the conventional war discussion with Ukraine and what's been going on in Gaza and so on. But the reality is 95% of what's out there is not is, is not those wars. It's this kind of vicious cycle of security and stability that we're talking about. And a lot of these soft operators in the community, especially civil affairs, mm -hmm. uh, because this is kind of their bread and butter. They want to go to the field. They want to continue their craft and they are very interested in, in doing it in this space. And I think it's important for us to understand them as an actor and understand what they can contribute, what they're going to where they can also be a detriment to the space. So I'm, I'm interested in uh, trying to engage with many of them as possible to understand their modus operandi and how they can impact the field. Very cool. Uh, it sounds to me like you've got a research agenda that's going to keep you very busy for quite a long time. And you're looking at something that is really obviously very important and will continue to be important even as we get distracted by the war of the moment that, as you, as you know, that there's plenty of things going on out there all around the world. And I, I do seem to remember a, a map that was, that was shown fairly recently on the internet about where the American special operators are operating. And it would have been easier to understand the world if you just had highlighted the countries where they weren't because it was so many different places. So I definitely think you're touching on something. I guess the one, one last question I have is, do you have any interest in looking at other countries, special operators, and see how they do this kind of thing? British, American, Canadian, Australian, French, German, whoever out. I mean, there are obviously other, every other country has, has, has soft units. I guess I don't know if they're clearly not as many of them. They're not as well funded, but I guess they still also have civil affairs folks. Because they're constantly meeting with, with civilians. Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, at, the, at the moment, I've not identified who I would want to look at. But one of the things which keeps coming up in the discussion around U.S. soft and U.S. civil affairs is that... There, there are some questions in terms of how how does civil affairs like are they they're set it's the 95th brigade there's also civil affairs reservists how does this integrate as, as part of the other force the other piece the lethal piece and what I 
I'm questioning, not questioning, but reflecting on lately is what's causing this discussion about the separation. And what I'm finding is that, and you would know this in smaller countries, militaries, because of their size, because of, you know, kind of the obvious reasons, you know, they're, they're being so big and they're just, you know, just having such a large military. The question I'd be interested in researching is, is the separation and sort of, you know, struggle for integration on the DOD side because of its size. Is it that the UK or France or Canada, whoever it might be, that soft are more expeditionary and they can have to be all of these things in one? You know, you should be able to be a medic, an SF, civil affairs, um, you know, all the things because there are just not as many of you. And I think that's really important for us to think about because you do kind of, it goes back to the generalist specialist, right? The kinds of stuff that I looked into the research. Do you have to be all of these things because you just don't have the luxury of there being more of you? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that's a really interesting set of questions. And as I said, you got your work cut out for you. I'm looking forward to getting this book. I, I, it's, it's coming out this spring. I did note online that the, the, the publication date is April and the paperback book is uh, of edition is quite affordable. So people should look for When Rambo Meets the Red Cross, Civil Military Engagement in Fragile States. I think it undersells the notion that you know, the description that you're actually talking to, you know, sort of the you know special operators, the people at the pointiest end of the stick. I think this is a really fascinating book and I think it's Gavin Dory relevant. So I wish you luck as you do your book tour. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much again, Stanley. All right. Thank you.